So uh, we've got a scientist, an engineer, and a politician, and they're arguing about uh, which profession was the oldest. The scientist said, well, mine's the oldest because God created Eve out of Adam, and that involved a surgical procedure. And the engineer said, well, not so fast, because before that, God created order out of chaos. And that surely was a feat of engineering. And the politician said, well, I've got you both beat, because listen, who created the chaos? <laughs> Don't you love politicians? I mean, we do. we got to love them, but we also hate them. They drive us crazy, and yet they're necessary to the lives that we live. Sometimes I think about uh, being politician. I think about how hard it must be. Actually, if, if somebody has good intent and is trying to do good for the community or the nation or the place where they live, it, you almost can't win. No matter what you say, whether good or bad, whether right or wrong, the moment you say it, with TV, with the internet, with social media, it's going to be you know, broadcast around the globe in seconds. Now, I don't think we would call Jesus a politician, would we? And yet he was a public figure. He didn't have social media to deal with, but you know what? Jesus had something that was just about as difficult. He had the old rumor mill. You know, whatever he said in one place was bound to precede him to the next village that he was going to visit. And if he ever talked about kingship, if he ever talked about uh, being king or God is king or what God wanted as king, then you can be sure that that kind of word was going to end up on King Herod's desk. And Herod was a very, very nasty guy. He didn't like anybody to suggest, as John the Baptist had done, which got him in jail, that he wasn't fit to be king. John had said that he was an immoral man because he had taken his brother's wife. So there he went to jail. King Herod doesn't like that kind of stuff. If he thought you were a, a Messiah, if he thought you were going to claim somehow that you were king, man, your, your life could be snuffed out just like that. So, on this day, when this question comes from John the Baptist's friends to Jesus, are you the one to come? Or should we keep waiting for somebody else? They were really asking, are you the Messiah? Jesus is really put in an awkward position. He gives a straightforward answer. That is, he answers this question that he is the Messiah. But listen, the way he does it, he, he has to do it very elusively. You know what he does? He describes what he's been doing, his work, in terms that, would, that the Old Testament used to describe the coming Messiah. I mean, let, let me show you what I'm talking about. When they ask the question, John responds, or Jesus responds, go back, report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is preached to the poor. Now, remember the passage that Joe read just a few minutes ago. It was a prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. And it, it assumes that when the Messiah comes, some things are going to happen. Here's what that passage says. Then, that is when the Messiah comes, will the eyes of the blind be opened? Then, will the ears of the deaf be unstopped? Then, 
Will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy? Do you hear it? He's quoting this Old Testament prophecy say about the Messiah to say that's who he is. And then he goes on to talk about John the Baptist as what the Elijah that was also prophesied to come before the Messiah was to show up. So he's giving a straightforward uh, or an answer. He's giving an answer, but he's giving it in a roundabout way. The question I want to ask is, why in the world was John putting him on the spot like this? You know, John knew he was the Messiah. Yes, he did. I think what's happening is that John began to have doubts about Jesus. See, in that day, John and most people thought about the Messiah a very specific way. They thought about the Messiah as some kind of prophet figure, like Elijah, who had called down fire from heaven. And you remember then, then Elijah literally slaughters 400 prophets of Baal, bringing the judgment of God down. And I think John was believing that Jesus was supposed to be like that, the Messiah was supposed to be like that, to call down the fire from heaven, to uh, wipe away all the godless people, especially the Romans, that, that Jesus should have set himself up as king in the place of Herod and that the kingdom of God would come. And of course, Jesus had not been doing that at all, right? Jesus has been spending his time with Tax collectors and folks, sinners, you know, all those folks who couldn't keep the 619 laws that were required to be a good religious person in the time. He'd been spending his time with those who were sick. And you know, there was this idea in Jesus' day that if you were sick, you were likely sick because you had sinned. It was your problem. And yet Jesus comes with healing, and what else? He comes also with forgiveness. That's what Jesus had been doing. John was, John was thinking that Jesus should come with judgment. But Jesus instead comes with mercy. I mean, John was thinking, well, let's divide people into the good people and the bad people. But Jesus has this way of looking at every single human being and being able to see the image of God in them. Instead of violence, Instead of forcing people to accept and welcome the, the kingdom of God, Jesus' way was invitation. Jesus' way was kindness. Jesus' way was forgiveness and love. And Je Jesus says to John and anybody else, blessed is the person who does not get hung up about that, about what I'm doing. But oh my goodness, they did in that day. Even John the Baptist did. And we do too, don't we? We do too. I mean, before, before I know what's going on in my life, judgment is right there. And I'm thinking myself that I'm a good guy. I'm living the life, you know. And I'm looking at somebody else and going, man, you're on your way to hell. I remember, look, I remember this guy walked into the office at church, asked for help, to go to his mother's funeral in Chicago. And he didn't have money to buy a bus ticket. Wouldn't we help him buy the bus ticket to get there? And so, you know, I won't go into all the details, but we, I ended up having to give him cash because I wanted him to have this bus ticket. The very next day, you all, 
This same guy is at the Episcopalian church giving the pastor there the same story. And I could have strangled the man. I mean, I, when I thought about it, I was just so angry. And judgment, see, my judgment was right there because, of course, I don't think about all those times that I've lied. I don't think about all those times that I pulled a story on somebody. I don't think about all the wrong that I've done. I think about what this other person done. Judgment just gets all over us before we even think about it. And yet Jesus offers another way. You know, I actually think uh, the reason we like to tell so many jokes about heaven and hell and about St. Peter and the pearly gates is I think we kind of like judgment. So another joke for you. Two guys show up at the pearly gates. One of them says, um, well, I I've been a taxi driver in New York City for 18 years. My name is Mike. St. Peter looks down and says, oh, Mike, we've been waiting for you. Come on in. Next guy goes up and he says, I've been pastor of First Presbyterian Church in New York City for 20 years. My name is Joe. Looks down the list. Nope, Joe, you don't get to come in. Joe says, what do you mean? You, you're going to let a taxi driver from New York City come in and you're not going to let me? I've helped so many people. And St. Peter says, listen, man, while you preached, people slept. While he drove, people prayed. <laughs> but mercy, more than judgment, is Jesus' way. We just struggle with it. I think the early church struggled with it. Um, there was a time the early Christians, I think, were, were wondering, you know, when is Jesus going to come again? Bring the second coming. Get rid of all the bad folks and, and all the rest of us are going to be okay. When, when is that going to happen? Peter writes a letter to them and he says, he says, look, the Lord is not being slow about the second coming. This promise that he's made to you, he is going to come. It's just that he, he's being patient because he wants every single person to come to repentance. That's what mercy does. It gives us the chance to open our eyes to God. So let me tell you a story. This is one of my favorite stories this time of year. Michael Lindell tells it in his book, uh, Good News from North Haven. There was a little church. In the church was this staunch old elder. He was one of the elders like we might have known, you know, a generation ago. Uh, right was right, wrong was wrong, and uh, good was good, and bad was bad. And he was the kind of elder who would tell you about it. And he was not very, he was pretty stern about things. His name was Angus McDowell. When the, the culture changed, it became informal, you know, in dress, especially at church, and Angus didn't change. So every Sunday morning, he's there in his th three-piece navy blue suit. That's just how it was. Well, one Sunday in this little church, they had a baptism. And after a baptism, the pastor noticed this uh, middle-aged lady coming down the aisle to him. He'd seen her. She'd been sitting on the back row for the last two or three weeks. But he, she always would scoot out the door, so she hadn't, he hadn't had a chance to meet her. She introduced herself as Mildred Corey. And she told the pastor that she loved the baptism today, that, that her daughter had been a part of the church youth group had gone through confirmation and she had a baby. Would uh, the pastor baptize the child? And the pastor said, oh, that'd be, that'd be fantastic. Why don't you get 
uh, what's her name? Her name was Tina. That's what she told him. Why don't you get Tina and her husband to give me a call and we'll talk about it. Well, that's when Mildred kind of looked down at her shoes, embarrassed. She said, uh, well, she doesn't have a husband. Uh, she dropped out of youth group and uh, started going with this older guy, got pregnant, and, and now he's gone off to the military. So the pastor said, well, you know, let's, let's let, let the session, let the leaders of the church talk about it. It was a Presbyterian church. The first thing that uh, Angus said was he, he wanted to know who the boy was and where he was. And the truth was that everybody in the little community already knew who it was. It was, you know, Jimmy McIntyre uh, because it was a small community and everybody knew every, everybody's business, you know, that sort of thing. In fact, Tina had, had named the little baby Jimmy after the dad, so everybody knew. Angus asked that question. Then there was another elder that, that wanted to know, well, she's only 18 years old. I mean, surely, you know, she's not old enough really to raise this child, to know the Lord, and to, to be a part of God's family. Who, who's going to help her? And the pastor said, well, we will. The real problem, you see, was what everybody was thinking in their heads about how that baptism was going to look. Because they had this tradition that they would ask the question, who stands with this child when there was a baptism? And then the immediate family would stand up in support of the child. But they could see already in their minds this little pimply-faced teenage girl clutching a little baby, standing up in front of the church and asking the question, who stands with this child? And maybe only her mom would stand. But they approved the baptism anyway and set it for the last Sunday of Advent. So the last Sunday came. It was, you know, cold. It was a December Sunday, right before Christmas. Um, gray skies, it was about to snow. The pastor said he thought he preached a pretty good sermon that day. And then afterwards, he and uh, an elder stood at front. And the elder said, who uh, is coming for baptism? Or said, no, I'm sorry. said, Tina Coy presents her son, Jimmy, for baptism. And this little teenage girl got up hesitantly and walked down the aisle, trying to smile, cuddling this little bit, little bit baby, and came to the front, turned around. And then the pastor asked the congregation, who stands with this child? And he nodded to uh, Mildred who had moved from the back to the front for this Sunday. And she looked aside to side, and then she got up. It was every bit as painful as everybody thought it was going to be. The teenage girl looking so lonely. And then all of a sudden, he heard this noise in the congregation. And he looked up, three rows back, Angus McDowell stood up. All six feet of him in that blue suit stood up, and then his wife right next to him, and two elders over here stood up. And then the Sunday school teacher for the youth stood up. And then there was a young couple here. And before you knew what happened, the whole congregation was standing up. Tina, of course, was bawling like a little baby, and Mildred was holding on to the pew in front of her, rocking like she was on a ship. It unnerved <laughs> And surprised everybody. When the time actually came for the baptism, little Jimmy was, was so out of sorts that the pastor was kind of wrestling him. And, but when the pastor put water on little Jimmy's head, 
and it dripped down his nose and on his cheek. All of a sudden he got calm and his eyes got big as saucers and he looked at the pastor and he looked at the congregation and that's when the pastor saw him. Right there. Angus McDowell leaning over his pew staring at the baby and the child at, and the mother with the biggest grin, perhaps the only grin this pastor had ever seen on this guy's face. Like he surely was remembering the baptism of his own child. You know, the scripture that morning was a passage from 1 John. It says, see what great love the Father has given us that we are called the children of God. It goes on to say, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, then God's love abides in us and God's love is perfected in us. You all, in that baptism, on that day, that scripture became real. The word actually became flesh in the people of that little congregation. The mercy of Jesus was real and present and everybody got to see it. I think, I think that our world really doesn't need more judgment. That's God's business anyway. I think what this world needs more than anything is the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. That's what we've received. We know his forgiveness, his grace. And as his people, we're invited to embody it for others so that they too can see and know who God really is. This Advent season, may we be people where mercy, mercy, is the key. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit. Amen. Let's, let's pray together. It's too good not to tell again, so. There is this um, teacher, Sunday school teacher, teaching uh, her fifth-year-old or five-year-old Sunday school class about Christmas. And she had everybody create a picture of the Holy Family on their way to Bethlehem. And, and all the kids, you know, drew the picture of Mary on the donkey and Joseph leading, except this one little boy, and he drew an airplane. And on the airplane, he put four people. And the teacher said, who are the four people? And the little boy said, oh, well, that's Mary, that's Joseph, that's baby Jesus, and that's Pontius the pilot. That's, that's just one of my favorites. So, you know, we're just about to celebrate the biggest holiday of the year, aren't we? Thousands, millions of dollars are going to be spent on presents and uh, on parties and on food and on family celebrations and community celebrations, and everybody's going to be filled, filled with all kinds of good wishes and good cheer. But I do wonder, I do wonder if we, if we know what Christmas is really all about. See, I think what happens with a lot of us is when we think about Christmas as if it's a time to push the pause button on life. It's like, at least, at least it's this way for me sometimes, 
The fall is such a busy time. Oh my goodness, in the last few weeks, it's like all this stuff is going, it's so hectic. And in the church, it's one of the busiest times in the life of the church. And then we come to Christmas, and it's just like, oh, let me relax. It's like, you know, goodness is here. Goodwill toward men, peace on earth, all that wonderful stuff before all the new year begins. I think we think about Christmas as that pause from life. It's kind of like those, uh, you know, uh, soldiers during World War One. You remember how terrible the trench warfare was? Uh, yet on Christmas Day, it all stopped just for a little bit. And the soldiers sang Christmas carols to one another across enemy lines. They even apparently, some of them, got up, played soccer in no man's land in the area between the trenches. And then the very next day, they were killing one another again. Sometimes I think we think of Christmas as an escape. It's God's moment to give us peace and goodwill. And it's kind of a a pause on real life. But here's what I want you to know. That's not it at all. Christmas is not, you know, this, this little, little bit of peace, this little bit of joy that God wants for us. Christmas is the statement, once and for all, that God really is in our world, that God is in the deepest and darkest challenges that you and I face in life. And that God has come to help us and save us in the midst of them. But I don't know how it is for you. I struggle to believe that. I really do. Now, King Ahaz in this story, he struggled to believe it. I think he knew that there was a God. I think he believed in God. And yet he, he doubted that God was actually involved in the challenges that he was facing in his life. And there are a couple of big reasons for that. I mean, number one, he had some big problems, right? He had these two enemy armies that were on the very verge of invading his nation. In fact, actually came in and sieged the city of Jerusalem. He, he was dealing with that. But, but did he look to God for help? Did, did, he, did he open himself to God and say, God, I need your help? No, he what he did is he actually asked help from the superpower Assyria. And he thought he was going to get help from them. He had these big problems. He didn't think God was big enough for them. Sometimes we are exactly like that. We look at our health situation. We look at our finance situation. We look at the trouble that we're having in our family. We look at the troubles we're having in the church. We look at the troubles we have in the community. And we think, oh, well, you know, we got to fix this on our own. God's not really interested in that. I can remember my family a few years ago when our nephew was dealing with a time of deep anxiety and depression and struggling with some mental illness. I'm grateful to say he's at a better point today, but in those days that he was having a very difficult time, he would disappear. He would be there, and then he would just he would disappear. He'd go away. Nobody knew where he was. We didn't know where he went. Um, we were worried that he was going to do something to himself. He was he was so depressed. He was sort of uh, we we were you know afraid that he might hurt his life. What what do you do in a situation like that? I mean, what what we do is we we try to get all the help we can, right? 
from every possible way. My sister and brother-in-law, they, uh, they called uh, you know, the police, of course, and filled out missing person reports. They, they uh, consulted mental health people. They, they went everywhere to get all sorts of help. But I'll tell you something they did that I think a lot of us would never think to do. Every single time my nephew had one of these episodes, they called the family, our family, and they called the people of their church, and they said, we've got to pray. Because they knew that God was the one who would make the difference in that circumstance. Poor Ahaz doesn't seem to know that, does he? He thinks that the problems he's got are bigger than the person that God really is. But there's another reason that he doubts. That's because he's listening to, to all the, the negative voices. You know, all, all the, the voices that sort of drag us down. A few years ago, I saw this um, Peanuts comic strip. I don't know how well you can see it, but I'm going to read it to you. So uh, one day, Linus and Lucy go out, and uh, Linus is going to make a snowman. And he says, well, the sun is, and she says, the sun is going to melt your snowman. So she's kind of negative. She's that negative voice. Linus is not paying attention to her. So she says it a little more clearly. She says, the sun is going to melt your snowman, and all that work will be for nothing. The sun is going to melt your snowman. Linus not listening at all. He's not paying attention. So she shouts now, I said the sun is going to melt your snowman. And of course the sun does not melt his snowman. He builds it up. It looks great. And so at the end she says, stupid sun. <laughs> I wonder how often those negative voices inhabit our lives. You know, there are all kind of negative voices that Ahaz was dealing with. He, he was dealing with uh, the threats of King Pekah and King Rezin. And the people of Jerusalem were hearing these threats. The Bible says they were so scared they were shaking like trees in the wind. Isn't that a great image? They were scared to death. And that's the voice that, that Ahaz was listening to. While all the while, God was saying, listen to my voice. Listen to the voice of Isaiah. And what had Isaiah promised? What did Isaiah promise? That God was saying, this will not happen. This bad stuff you're worried about, these anxious thoughts that you're having, it will not come to pass. You know the thing that amazes me about God in this event and in our lives is that even when you and I have a hard time believing, God is committed to help us. God wants us to believe. God wants us to trust. And so in this story, what happens? God says to Ahaz, look, you ask me for a sign, I will give you a sign. It can be whatever you want. You can say, as Jesus said, you know, to that mountain, get up and go into the sea. That can be the sign, and it will prove to you that I am, in fact, in this circumstance, and I will help you. But Ahaz, for whatever reason, and maybe it was simply that he was just so lost in his anxiety and fear, but for whatever reason, he will not ask for a sign. And so God, in, in, in frustration, says, okay, if you do not ask for my help, 
I'm not going to be able to give you my help. See, God's not going to ever force God's self on us. God's never going to ask us and, and, and say, I'm just going to come into your life. I'm going to come into your problems. I'm going to come into your struggle. God won't do that. God respects you and me too much. God says, if you will not ask Ahaz, then you're not going to have the help you need. And the result is going to be this superpower you're depending on, Assyria, may be helpful for a while, but ultimately they're going to turn against you and tear you down. And we know that's exactly what happened. But God says, you want to ask for a sign? I'm going to give you a sign myself. And the sign is a, in this instance, it's a sign to prove to, to Ahaz that God is there and that God cares. He says, there's going to be a virgin who's going to bear a child, and she's going to name her child Emmanuel. The word Emmanuel means God is with us. And so I'm sure of what happened, that, that as Assyrian armies begin to sweep into, into the area of Palestine, as they begin to besiege the city of Jerusalem, even though Ahaz had, had looked to, to uh, Assyria to help them, I'm sure, I'm sure Ahaz saw this woman. He saw that baby. And every time he saw that child, he, he remembered that word. The child's name was God is with us. God is with us. God is with us. And yet Ahaz didn't believe. Many years later, centuries later, there was another man who had some problems. His name was Joseph. And Joseph had some problems, didn't he? His wife, Mary was expectant with child. And what did he think? What did he think immediately? Oh, I've got to handle this myself. He didn't think about asking God for help. He thought, I've got to handle this myself. And he was listening to a negative voice inside of himself. That negative voice was saying, you know, she's been with another man. You, you better divorce her. You better divorce her. Now, you can do it quietly, but you better divorce her. That's what was going on with Joseph. But then in the night, God's messenger comes to him and God's messenger says, do not be afraid to take this child as your own. Because the baby is of the Holy Spirit. This is the Son of God. You will call him Jesus and he will save people from their sins. And that gives Joseph the courage. In this instance, he trusts. In this instance, he believes he takes the risk to believe that God will be with him. Now, he doesn't know right away whether that's true or not. He has to wait nine months. It's not until the shepherds show up. It's not until the wise men show up that he goes, okay, I realize this really is, you know, the Son of God. And it's probably not even until Jesus really begins to grow up as a little boy that he begins to have that confidence that, in fact, God had been with him, but he took the risk. He heard God's word and he said, okay, I'm going to believe that in fact you are with me in the struggle that I am in. And because he said that, then Matthew, Matthew says, remember that, that Old Testament story about Ahaz? Remember how we talked about the child who will give birth and you'll call his name Emmanuel. Now, instead of being a negative sign as it was in Isaiah's day, 
Now this is going to be a positive sign because this is the truth about who God is. Through Jesus Christ, he is saying, God has come into our world in the deepest, darkest problems that you and I have to help us, to save us, to forgive us, and to give us a chance to go with life again. I think about that little boy who drew the plane sometimes. And I think, you know, maybe that kid actually did know what Christmas was all about. Because the only way we get places these days is by car and by plane, right? And he had the sense that, my goodness, Christmas was real life to him, real life to you and me. And I want to say, who knows, maybe somewhere there is a Pontius the Pilot. <laughs> but here's the thing. What big problem are you struggling with? I mean, seriously, what, what big issue has got you up at night that you're worried about? What in our church? What in our community? What in our nation? D dare we try to face the challenges of this world on our own, or by looking at resources that are important without, without failing to, to go after the one who's really here, who really cares, who can really make a difference. Christmas says God has come to you and me to help us and to save us. And I hope you and I will take that step of faith to trust and believe that. In the name of the Father and the Son, and the Spirit. Amen. It's too good not to tell again, so. There is this um, teacher, Sunday school teacher, teaching uh, her fifth-year-old or five-year-old Sunday school class about Christmas. And she had everybody create a picture of the Holy Family on their way to Bethlehem. And, and all the kids, you know, drew the picture of Mary on the donkey and Joseph leading, except this one little boy, and he drew an airplane. And on the airplane, he put four people. And the teacher said, who are the four people? And the little boy said, oh, well, that's Mary, that's Joseph, that's baby Jesus, and that's Pontius the pilot. <laughs> That's just one of my favorites. <laughs> so, you know, we're just about to celebrate the biggest holiday of the year, aren't we? Thousands, millions of dollars are going to be spent on presents and uh, on parties and on food and on family celebrations and community celebrations. And everybody's going to be filled, filled with all kinds of good wishes and good cheer. But I do wonder, I do wonder if we, if we know what Christmas is really all about. See, I think what happens with a lot of us is when we think about Christmas as if it's a time to push the pause button on life. It's like, at least, at least it's this way for me sometimes, the fall is such a busy time. Oh my goodness, in the last few weeks, it's like all this stuff is going, it's so hectic. And in the church, it's one of the busiest times in the life of the church. 
And then we come to Christmas, and it's just like, oh, let me relax. It's like, you know, goodness is here. Goodwill toward men, peace on earth, all that wonderful stuff before all the new year begins. I think we think about Christmas as that pause from life. It's kind of like those, uh, you know, uh, soldiers during World War One. You remember how terrible the trench warfare was? Uh, yet on Christmas Day, it all stopped just for a little bit. And the soldiers sang Christmas carols to one another across enemy lines. They even apparently, some of them, got up, played soccer in no man's land in the area between the trenches. And then the very next day, they were killing one another again. Sometimes I think we think of Christmas as an escape. It's God's moment to give us peace and goodwill. And it's kind of a a pause on real life. But here's what I want you to know. That's not it at all. Christmas is not, you know, this, this little, little bit of peace, this little bit of joy that God wants for us. Christmas is the statement, once and for all, that God really is in our world, that God is in the deepest and darkest challenges that you and I face in life. And that God has come to help us and save us in the midst of them. But I don't know how it is for you. I struggle to believe that. I really do. Now King Ahaz in this story, he struggled to believe it. I think he knew that there was a God. I think he believed in God. And yet he, he doubted that God was actually involved in the challenges that he was facing in his life. And there are a couple of big reasons for that. I mean, number one, he had some big problems, right? He had these two enemy armies that were on the very verge of invading his nation. In fact, actually came in and sieged the city of Jerusalem. He, he was dealing with that. But, but did he look to God for help? Did, did, he, did he open himself to God and say, God, I need your help? No, he what he did is he actually asked help from the superpower Assyria. And he thought he was going to get help from them. He had these big problems. He didn't think God was big enough for them. Sometimes we are exactly like that. We look at our health situation. We look at our finance situation. We look at the trouble that we're having in our family. We look at the troubles we're having in the church. We look at the troubles we have in the community. And we think, oh, well, you know, we got to fix this on our own God's not really interested in that. I can remember my family a few years ago when our nephew was dealing with a time of deep anxiety and depression and struggling with some mental illness. I'm grateful to say he's at a better point today, but in those days that he was having a very difficult time, he would disappear. He would be there, and then he would just—he would disappear. He'd go away. Nobody knew where he was. We didn't know where he went. Um, we were worried that he was going to do something to himself. He was—he was so depressed. He was sort of—we uh, we you know afraid that he might hurt his life. What, what do you do in a situation like that? I mean, what what we do is we we try to get all the help we can, right, from every possible way. My sister and brother-in-law, they. Uh, they called, uh, you know, the police, of course, filled out missing person reports. They, 
they uh, consulted mental health people. They, they went everywhere to get all sorts of help. But I'll tell you something they did that I think a lot of us would never think to do. Every single time my nephew had one of these episodes, they called the family, our family, and they called the people of their church, and they said, we've got to pray. Because they knew that God was the one who would make the difference in that circumstance. Poor Ahaz doesn't seem to know that, does he? He thinks that the problems he's got are bigger than the person that God really is. But there's another reason that he doubts. That's because he's listening to, to all the, the negative voices. You know, all all the, the voices that sort of drag us down. A few years ago, I saw this um, Peanuts comic strip. I don't know how well you can see it, but I'm going to read it to you. So uh, one day, Linus and Lucy go out, and uh, Linus is going to make a snowman. And he says, well, the sun is, and she says, the sun is going to melt your snowman. So she's kind of negative. She's that negative voice. Linus is not paying attention to her. So she says it a little more clearly. She says, the sun is going to melt your snowman, and all that work will be for nothing. The sun is going to melt your snowman. Linus not listening at all. He's not paying attention. So she shouts now. I said the sun is going to melt your snowman. And of course the sun does not melt his snowman. He builds it up. It looks great. And so at the end she says, stupid sun. <laughs> I wonder how often those negative voices inhabit our lives. You know, there are all kind of negative voices that Ahaz was dealing with. He, he was dealing with uh, the threats of King Pekah and King Rezin. And the people of Jerusalem were hearing these threats. The Bible says they were so scared they were shaking like trees in the wind. Isn't that a great image? They were scared to death. And that's the voice that, that Ahaz was listening to. While all the while, God was saying, listen to my voice. Listen to the voice of Isaiah. And what had Isaiah promised? What did Isaiah promise? That God was saying, this will not happen. This bad stuff you're worried about, these anxious thoughts that you're having, it will not come to pass. You know the thing that amazes me about God in this event and in our lives is that even when you and I have a hard time believing God is committed to help us. God, God wants us to believe. God wants us to trust. And so in this story what happens? God says to Ahaz, look you ask me for a sign I will give you a sign. It can be whatever you want. You can say as Jesus said you know to that mountain get up and go into the sea. That can be the sign and it will prove to you that I am, in fact, in this circumstance, and I will help you. But Ahaz, for whatever reason, and maybe it was simply that he was just so lost in his anxiety and fear, but for whatever reason, he will not ask for a sign. And so God, in, in, in frustration, says, okay, if you do not ask for my help, I'm not going to be able to give you my help. See, God's not going to ever force 
God's self on us. God's never going to ask us and, and, and say, I'm just going to come into your life. I'm going to come into your problems. I'm going to come into your struggle. God won't do that. God respects you and me too much. God says, if you will not ask Ahaz, then you're not going to have the help you need. And the result is going to be this superpower you're depending on, Assyria. May be helpful for a while, but ultimately they're going to turn against you and tear you down. And we know that's exactly what happened. But God says, you want to ask for a sign? I'm going to give you a sign myself. And the sign is a, in this instance, it's a sign to prove to, to Ahaz that God is there and that God cares. He says, there's going to be a virgin who's going to bear a child, and she's going to name her child Emmanuel. The word Emmanuel means God is with us. And so I'm sure of what happened, that, that as Assyrian armies begin to sweep into, into the area of Palestine, as they begin to besiege the city of Jerusalem, even though Ahaz had, had looked to, to uh, Assyria to help them, I'm sure, I'm sure Ahaz saw this woman. He saw that baby. And every time he saw that child, he, he remembered that word. The child's name was God is with us. God is with us. God is with us. And yet Ahaz didn't believe. Many years later, centuries later, there was another man who had some problems. His name was Joseph. And Joseph had some problems, didn't he? His wife, Mary was expectant with child. And what did he think? What did he think immediately? Oh, the, I've got to handle this myself. He didn't think about asking God for help. He thought, I've got to handle this myself. And he was listening to a negative voice inside of himself. That negative voice was saying, you know, she's been with another man. You, you better divorce her. You better divorce her. Now, you can do it quietly, but you better divorce her. That's what was going on with Joseph. But then in the night, God's messenger comes to him and God's messenger says, do not be afraid to take this child as your own. Because the baby is of the Holy Spirit. This is the Son of God. You will call him Jesus and he will save people from their sins. And that gives Joseph the courage. In this instance, he trusts. In this instance, he believes. He takes the risk to believe that God will be with him. Now, he doesn't know right away whether that's true or not. He has to wait nine months. It's not until the shepherds show up. It's not until the wise men show up that he goes, okay, I realize this really is, you know, the Son of God. And it's probably not even until Jesus really begins to grow up as a little boy that he begins to have that confidence that, in fact, God had been with him, but he took the risk. He heard God's word and he said, okay, I'm going to believe that in fact you are with me in the struggle that I am in. And because he said that, then Matthew, Matthew says, remember that, that Old Testament story about Ahaz? Remember how we talked about the child who will give birth and you'll call his name Emmanuel. Now, instead of being a negative sign as it was in Isaiah's day, now this is going to be a positive sign because this is the truth about who God is. Through Jesus Christ, he is saying, God has come into our world 
in the deepest, darkest problems that you and I have to help us, to save us, to forgive us, and to give us a chance to go with life again. I think about that little boy who drew the plane sometimes. And I think, you know, maybe that kid actually did know what Christmas was all about. Because the only way we get places these days is by car and by plane, right? And he had the sense that, my goodness, Christmas was real life to him, real life to you and me. And I want to say, who knows, maybe somewhere there is a Pontius the Pilot. <laughs> but here's the thing. What big problem are you struggling with? I mean, seriously, what, what big issue has got you up at night that you're worried about? What in our church? What in our community? What in our nation? D dare we try to face the challenges of this world on our own, or by looking at resources that are important without, without failing to, to go after the one who's really here, who really cares, who can really make a difference. Christmas says God has come to you and me to help us and to save us. And I hope you and I will take that step of faith to trust and believe that. In the name of the Father and the Son, and the Spirit. Amen. It's too good not to tell again, so. There is this um, teacher, Sunday school teacher, teaching uh, her fifth-year-old or five-year-old Sunday school class about Christmas. And she had everybody create a picture of the Holy Family on their way to Bethlehem. And, and all the kids, you know, drew the picture of Mary on the donkey and Joseph leading, except this one little boy, and he drew an airplane. And on the airplane, he put four people. And, and the teacher said, who are the four people? And the little boy said, oh, well, that's Mary, that's Joseph, that's baby Jesus, and that's Pontius the pilot. <laughs> That's just one of my favorites. <laughs> so, you know, we're just about to celebrate the biggest holiday of the year, aren't we? Thousands, millions of dollars are going to be spent on presents and uh, on parties and on food and on family celebrations and community celebrations. And everybody's going to be filled, filled with all kinds of good wishes and good cheer. But I do wonder, I do wonder if we, if we know what Christmas is really all about. See, I think what happens with a lot of us is when we think about Christmas as if it's a time to push the pause button on life. It's like, at least, at least it's this way for me sometimes, the fall is such a busy time. Oh my goodness, in the last few weeks, it's like all this stuff is going, it's so hectic. And in the church, it's one of the busiest times in the life of the church. And then we come to Christmas, and it's just like, oh, let me relax. It's like, you know, goodness is here. 
Goodwill toward men, peace on earth, all that wonderful stuff before all the new year begins. I think we think about Christmas as that pause from life. It's kind of like those, uh, you know, uh, soldiers during World War One. You remember how terrible the trench warfare was? Uh, yet on Christmas Day, it all stopped just for a little bit. And the soldiers sang Christmas carols to one another across enemy lines. They even apparently, some of them, got up, played soccer in no man's land in the area between the trenches. And then the very next day, they were killing one another again. Sometimes I think we think of Christmas as an escape. It's God's moment to give us peace and goodwill. And it's kind of a a pause on real life. But here's what I want you to know. That's not it at all. Christmas is not, you know, this, this little, little bit of peace, this little bit of joy that God wants for us. Christmas is the statement, once and for all, that God really is in our world, that God is in the deepest and darkest challenges that you and I face in life. And that God has come to help us and save us in the midst of them. But I don't know how it is for you. I struggle to believe that. I really do. Now, King Ahaz in this story, he struggled to believe it. I think he knew that there was a God. I think he believed in God. And yet he, he doubted that God was actually involved in the challenges that he was facing in his life. And there are a couple of big reasons for that. I mean, number one, he had some big problems, right? He had these two enemy armies that were on the very verge of invading his nation. In fact, he actually came in and sieged the city of Jerusalem. He, he was dealing with that. But, but did he look to God for help? Did, did, he, did he open himself to God and say, God, I need your help? No, he what he did is he actually asked help from the superpower Assyria. And he thought he was going to get help from them. He had these big problems. He didn't think God was big enough for them. Sometimes we are exactly like that. We look at our health situation. We look at our finance situation. We look at the trouble that we're having in our family. We look at the troubles we're having in the church. We look at the troubles we have in the community. And we think, oh, well, you know, we got to fix this on our own. God's not really interested in that. I can remember my family a few years ago when our nephew was dealing with a time of deep anxiety and depression and struggling with some mental illness. I'm grateful to say he's at a better point today, but in those days that he was having a very difficult time, he would disappear. He would be there, and then he would just he would disappear. He'd go away. Nobody knew where he was. We didn't know where he went. Um, we were worried that he was going to do something to himself. He was he was so depressed. He was sort of uh, we we were you know afraid that he might hurt his life. What what do you do in a situation like that? I mean, what what we do is we we try to get all the help we can, right, from every possible way. My sister and brother-in-law they. Uh, they called, uh, you know, the police, of course, filled out missing person reports. They, they uh, consulted mental health people. They, they went everywhere to get all sorts of help. 
But I'll tell you something they did that I think a lot of us would never think to do. Every single time my nephew had one of these episodes, they called the family, our family, and they called the people of their church, and they said, we've got to pray. Because they knew that God was the one who would make the difference in that circumstance. Poor Ahaz doesn't seem to know that, does he? He thinks that the problems he's got are bigger than the person that God really is. But there's another reason that he doubts. That's because he's listening to, to all the, the negative voices. You know, all all the, the voices that sort of drag us down. A few years ago, I saw this um, Peanuts comic strip. I don't know how well you can see it, but I'm going to read it to you. So uh, one day, Linus and Lucy go out, and uh, Linus is going to make a snowman. And he says, well, the sun is, and she says, the sun is going to melt your snowman. So she's kind of negative. She's that negative voice. Linus is not paying attention to her. So she says it a little more clearly. She says, the sun is going to melt your snowman, and all that work will be for nothing. The sun is going to melt your snowman. Linus not listening at all. He's not paying attention. So she shouts now. I said the sun is going to melt your snowman. And of course the sun does not melt his snowman. He builds it up. It looks great. And so at the end he says, stupid sun. <laughs> I wonder how often those negative voices inhabit our lives. You know, there are all kind of negative voices that Ahaz was dealing with. He, he was dealing with uh, the threats of King Pekah and King Rezin. And the people of Jerusalem were hearing these threats. The Bible says they were so scared they were shaking like trees in the wind. Isn't that a great image? They were scared to death. And that's the voice that, that Ahaz was listening to. While all the while, God was saying, listen to my voice. Listen to the voice of Isaiah. And what had Isaiah promised? What did Isaiah promise? That God would say, this will not happen. This bad stuff you're worried about, these anxious thoughts that you're having, it will not come to pass. You know the thing that amazes me about God in this event and in our lives is that even when you and I have a hard time believing God is committed to help us. God, God wants us to believe. God wants us to trust. And so in this story what happens? God says to Ahaz, look you ask me for a sign I will give you a sign. It can be whatever you want. You can say as Jesus said you know to that mountain get up and go into the sea. That can be the sign and it will prove to you that I am, in fact, in this circumstance and I will help you. But Ahaz, for whatever reason, and maybe it was simply that he was just so lost in his anxiety and fear. But for whatever reason, he will not ask for a sign. And so God, in, in, in frustration, says, okay, if you do not ask for my help, I'm not going to be able to give you my help. See, God's not going to ever force God's self on us. God's never going to ask us and, and, and say, I'm just going to come into your life. I'm going to come into your problems. 
I'm going to come into your struggle. God won't do that. God respects you and me too much. God says, if you will not ask Ahaz, then you're not going to have the help you need. And the result is going to be this superpower you're depending on, Assyria. May be helpful for a while, but ultimately they're going to turn against you and tear you down. And we know that's exactly what happened. But God says, you want to ask for a sign? I'm going to give you a sign myself. And the sign is a, in this instance, it's a sign to prove to, to Ahaz that God is there and that God cares. He says, there's going to be a virgin who's going to bear a child and she's going to name her child Emmanuel. The word Emmanuel means God is with us. And so I'm sure of what happened, that, that as Assyrian armies begin to sweep into, into the area of Palestine, as they begin to besiege the city of Jerusalem, even though Ahaz had, had looked to, to uh, Assyria to help them, I'm sure, I'm sure Ahaz saw this woman, he saw that baby, and every time he saw that child, he, he remembered that word. The child's name was God is with us. God is with us. God is with us. And yet Ahaz didn't believe. Many years later, centuries later, there was another man who had some problems. His name was Joseph. Joseph had some problems, didn't he? His wife Mary was expectant with child. And what did he think? What did he think immediately? Oh, I've got to handle this myself. He didn't think about asking God for help. He thought, I've got to handle this myself. And he was listening to a negative voice inside of himself. That negative voice was saying, you know, she's been with another man. You, you better divorce her. You better divorce her. Now, you can do it quietly, but you better divorce her. That's what was going on with Joseph. But then in the night, God's messenger comes to him, and God's messenger says, do not be afraid to take this child as your own, because the baby is of the Holy Spirit, this is the Son of God. You will call him Jesus and he will save people from their sins. And that gives Joseph the courage. In this instance, he trusts. In this instance, he believes. He takes the risk to believe that God will be with him. Now, he doesn't know right away whether that's true or not. He has to wait nine months it's not until the shepherds show up. It's not until the wise men show up that he goes, okay, I realize this really is, you know, the Son of God. And it's probably not even until Jesus really begins to grow up as a little boy that he begins to have that confidence that, in fact, God had been with him. But he took the risk. He heard God's word and he said, okay, I'm going to believe that, in fact, you are with me in the struggle that I am in. And because he said that, then Matthew, Matthew says, remember that, that Old Testament story about Ahaz? Remember how we talked about the child who will give birth and you'll call his name Emmanuel? Now, instead of being a negative sign as it was in Isaiah's day, now this is going to be a positive sign because this is the truth about who God is. Through Jesus Christ, he is saying, God has come into our world in the deepest, darkest problems that you and I have to help us, to save us, 
to forgive us and to give us a chance to go with life again. I think about that little boy who drew the play sometimes. And I think, you know, maybe that kid actually did know what Christmas was all about. Because the only way we get places these days is by car and by plane, right? And he had the sense that, my goodness, Christmas was real life to him, real life to you and me. And I want to say, who knows? Maybe somewhere there is a Pontius the Pilot. <laughs> but here's the thing. What big problem are you struggling with? I mean, seriously, what, what big issue has got you up at night that you're worried about? What in our church? What in our community? What in our nation? D dare we try to face the challenges of this world on our own, or by looking at resources that are important without, without failing to, to go after the one who's really here, who really cares, who can really make a difference. Christmas says God has come to you and me to help us and to save us. And I hope you and I will take that step of faith to trust and believe that. In the name of the Father and the Son, and the Spirit.